Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at Ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. In the course of life, there are many things which once learned a person should, under normal circumstances, never have to relearn. God willing, a child learns to walk once, and that's it. Occasionally, potty training doesn't take right away, but eventually, most families can put that watershed moment of formation behind them forever. In some cases, a child may learn a tune on the piano at a particularly impressionable moment, never to be forgotten. And perhaps the most proverbial example of all is riding a bike. There's just something about it that sticks, no matter what. No doubt, many children raised in Christian homes acquire and maintain for life certain devotional practices. It would be either comical or sad, or both, for me to discover one of my children had forgotten the Lord's Prayer, or suddenly had no idea how to cross themselves. But many elements from the content of the faith come and go, depending on how they were learned and how often they pop up in a person's life. What was the name of that talking donkey in the book of Numbers? Does Matthew record Jesus saying poor and Luke poor in spirit? Or is it vice versa? What was the name of the thing St. Juan Diego used to gather up the flowers that turned into the image of Guadalupe? Thanks be to God, Christians are not iconoclasts. That is, we are not only not forbidden, but are positively encouraged to create images of the figures of our faith. Moreover, Christian artists are free to give concrete form to abstract theological concepts, to invent stories with words and pictures, or to elaborate new elements to existing stories as a way to point to the essentials of salvation history. Tommy DePaola is one of the most celebrated authors of children's books. But many of his works were explicitly Catholic, too, designed to enchant young people with the faith in ways that would stick in their minds and in their hearts for life. Before his death in 2020, DePaola had published 260 children's books, both writing and illustrating them. And he made his first big splash in 1975 with the now world-famous story, Strega Nona. Over the years, De Paula produced books of Bible stories, saints' lives, religious legends, holiday books, and family tales. In 2011, he received the Children's Literature Legacy Award for his life's work. In the social media era, De Paula began producing what he called art mail, which he regularly sent to friends and fans and also posted to Facebook. These were pictures, 
which range in quality from elaborate drawings suitable for one of his book pages to little doodles scratched off for fun. He composed them for many occasions, including saints' days, and unusual saints' days at that. How many cartoons have you seen before of saints Marus and Placid, saint Hunna, saint Hedwig, or saint Fiacre? For the first time, these pictures have been gathered into one book called Through the Year with Tommy DePaola, accompanied by text from Ignatius Press's own Catherine Harmon and John Harried. The foreword to the volume is written by Sarah McKenzie, my guest today to discuss the book, along with the legacy of Tommy DePaola and the importance of literature in children's faith formation. A popular homeschooling advocate, Sarah is the author of The Read Aloud Family and is the creator of The Read Aloud Revival, a program designed to help kids fall in love with books. Sarah had the privilege of getting to know Tommy DePaola towards the end of his life, and I have the privilege to welcome her now to the Ignatius Press podcast. Sarah McKenzie, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? I am doing wonderful. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to get to talk to you today because we are uh, talking about a great figure in children's literature, in, in literature generally, a great figure of uh, kind of recent literary times, and that's Tommy DePaola, uh, whom I'm sure most parents listening will recognize uh, that name. Uh, but probably a lot of other people too. But just in case there are people out there who have either never heard of Tommy DePaola or have maybe forgotten exactly who he is or what his significance is, um, just fill our fill our listeners in as we get started today, Sarah, uh, of who this person is we're talking about today. Yes. Yeah, so Tommy was a picture book author and illustrator. His most famous work, the work I think most people knew him from, was Strega Nona. So if you can picture that little Italian woman <laughs> illustration in your mind when I say that, then somebody probably read you Tommy DePaola's books when you were growing up. Uh, he wrote over 280, I think. I, I might have that number wrong. 280 books for children and illustrated. Sometimes he illustrated them. Sometimes he wrote and illustrated them. But he developed this very iconic style that's uh, very Tommy. So if you see an illustration that looks like it could be Tommy, I mean, you just know it's a Tommy DePella as soon as you see it. Um, and so many of his books, because he was Catholic and had this like Catholic heritage, so many of his books include liturgical times of year, uh, church you know, seasons in the church year, um, priests and sisters in a convent and saints. And so his books, I always like to say, tend to baptize our children's imaginations because he pairs, I mean, in the children's publishing world, he was an icon. And then in the outside of that, he like brought this Catholic heritage into that, um, into that world and that space that wasn't used to seeing it. And so outside of that world, as we're like parents reading with our kids and sitting down at home together to share stories with our children, he takes, you know, he's given us stories like Streganona that are just completely fun and like bathed them with uh, illustrations and signs of the church. Your kids can spot them. You can't read his books without being like, oh, this man's Catholic. I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right, Sarah. And yeah, Streganona is definitely one that probably if they've heard of any book by him, uh, they will have 
heard of that one. It won the Caldecott Award, I believe. I mean, it was, you know, a big deal book. Um, and I want to talk about some more of his titles as we get into it. But before before we go any further, I want to point out that we're um, we're uh, the purpose of our conversation is to um, is to talk about this this new volume that Ignatius Press has put out called Through the Year with Tommy DePaola, uh, to which you wrote the foreword. And in the foreword, you talk about how you personally knew Tommy DePaola. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about that, how you came to know him and what what knowing him meant for you. Yeah. So, and and maybe we should start by saying Tommy passed in March of 2020 um, from complications following a fall. And he was 82 or 83. I always get that mixed up. He was in his early 80s at the time. I met him a few years before that. As a child, I was introduced to his work when uh, my parents read a lot of his stories to me. And uh, I, I came across his stories. But as a mother, I have six children. And I just stumbled upon his work again as I'm at the library looking for really good books to read aloud. I host a podcast called Read Aloud Revival, and we also do these meet the author Zoom events for kids where families and kids can meet the authors and illustrators of their favorite books that we're reading together at Read Aloud Revival. And so I had invited Tommy DePaola to come onto a Zoom and do an interview with me um, in 2018. And honestly, I did not think I would get him. We send invitations all the time to, you know, these big wig authors and illustrators, and sometimes we get them and sometimes we don't. But he came and we just, it felt, it felt like kindred spirits. We had a, this great time. And afterwards, his assistant, Bob, told me he was floating. He was just like, what, like jovial. He was just so energetic. He had so much fun. And I had the same experience. So I asked him, hey, do you want to come back the next year? That first year we talked about Streganona. The following year, we talked about Patrick, patron saint of Ireland, which was a picture book that he wrote and illustrated um, about the legends of St. Patrick. And so we did another event and it happened to be on the same day. It had been April 18th, 2018, the first time I interviewed him. And then it was to the, uh, April 18th, 2019 when I interviewed him, interviewed him again. And so he wrote to me afterwards and said, April 18th is our day. <laughs> well, we kind of developed this friendship where we would email back and forth. Um, my, my husband and I have six kids. Like I mentioned, our youngest two are twins. They're identical twin boys. And they get into all of the antics you can imagine with identical twin boys. And Tommy loved these stories. So I would send him the funny stories, all the funny little clips and videos. And um, I went out and visited him each summer uh, for the last few years. And we just sort of developed this friendship that uh, I really treasured. And I think he did too. When he passed, we were working on making a picture book together, which didn't actually, uh, we didn't, weren't able to do that before it was his time to go. But uh, it was, he was one of those people um, who is, he brightens up the room when he walks into it. Like you can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit because he's so joyful. There's so much like deep peace there, but he is also very deep and complicated. So there was like a, um, it wasn't like a superficial kind of a joy. And I think sometimes it's easy to, you know, you see these books by him, you see these illustrations when you meet him, he's usually, you know, he'd be wearing like a brightly covered scarf and he's a ball of energy and he laugh like no other. And there's a temptation to think he's, you know, never been through hard things or that he was just, you know, like, like, keep it on a superficial level. But one of the things I loved so much about him is how, uh, how deep he was, how complex he was and how many, um, how much he really wanted children to fall in love with books and, and get quiet and be able to see the deeper things of life through the books he made. 
Yeah, you say in your foreword, actually, I love this line that you wrote. You said, his deceptively simple illustrations reveal the glory and splendor of the world and the richness of a deep interior life. Hmm. And I, I thought that was really insightful of you, Sarah, to say that because I, I, I watched a couple of interviews with Tommy DePaola uh, that were available on YouTube. And something that he said in, in all of them really was that um, just how hard he worked uh, on his books, you know, that that he really um, was trying to convey through simplicity, this incredible depth, which I think is not something, you know, I think people think, oh, well, I could write a children's book, yeah. you know, hey, how hard can it be? <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but and and you maybe you read a Tommy DePaola book or something, and, and you say, well, I could do that, you know, just take it, take a story from a saint's life and paint some pictures and, or, you know, p- tell a funny story about a a, a grandma, uh, you know, whatever at her at her stove, but it really is it really is hard work, isn't it, Sarah? It is, and I think his dedication. He really believed firmly. I've heard him say this so many times that only the best is good enough for children. And so, um, when I was at his studio, I would wa- I, he showed me the last time I was at his studio. He was making the cover for Christina's Carol, which is a picture book. He uh, wrote an illust or no, he illustrated a about Christina Rossetti writing in the bleak midwinter. And it looks simple. It it looks like a woman sitting at her desk writing next to snow falling. And yet when I was listening to him talk about all the different pieces he was trying to like, what he was trying to convey there, what he was trying to do with that illustration, it was, it, I guess one of the things that it makes me think of is, have you ever read a book or listened to a speaker where it, they are so complex, they use so many big words that you're like, I don't really know what they're talking about. And then it kind of occurs to you that maybe they don't know what they're talking about either. Like, like, but then they sound like they're trying to make, use big words to make it sound like they are. Tommy was the opposite. He understood an art so deeply. When I'm at a studio, I could see all this art that he had done that I would never have known was Tommy's because it wasn't this simple, like thick lines, clean lines, folk art kind of um, feel that his, that the art that he's so well known for has, it would be like a, a self-portrait that looked like him. <laughs> it would be like a very realistic drawings. This was the kind of artistic expertise that's underneath. It's like, it's a, it's a layer underneath um, the simplicity that we see. We just see this final, like, Stregonona, and she looks like a very simple, like, oh, I could draw that. But if you knew every, all the artistic choices he was making underneath it. Um, there's a Caldecott Award-winning illustrator, Trina Sharp-Hyman, who illustrated um, St. George and the Dragon. That might be a book that- I love that on. book. Yes, yes absolutely. We, we've read that in our, in our home, yes. So that- Trina had a style that was very lush and uh, almost like a tapestry, very complicated. And there was a lot of detail in the borders Mm -hmm. and things. She and Tommy were friends and I never got to meet her, but I know that she had said um, that she tried to copy Tommy's simple style and she couldn't manage it, spent Mm -hmm. hours trying to duplicate it. And here's this very, very talented artist who's like, there's something else going on here. And I, I think the dedication that he put into and the love for children, the love for life that he put behind his work shines through, even if we can't quite put our finger on why, Mm -hmm. why it works. There's a, there's a, a kind of expression I've heard about public speaking or preaching, which goes something like, I wanted to, I wanted to speak briefly, but I didn't have enough time. Yes. You know, like (laughs) it it really is hard work to be simple. 
Yeah. And uh, you do see that in the best of children's literature and in, and in Tommy DePaolo's work, for sure. Let's get into the book. I was really struck by how you how you mentioned the the occurrence where you had back to back years where you encountered him uh, on the same day. And I think that relates to to this volume that we're talking about, because after all, it is a book about the rhythm of the year, the church year and just the year in general that's marked by saints days, by religious observances and other and other things that we mark on the calendar. Um, Tell us a little bit about. Well, first of all, this book, we should say uh, outright, is what what he what is his what is Tommy DePaola's are just the illustrations in the book. We have these wonderful um, wonderful bits of text that were written by Catherine Harmon and John Harry from um, Ignatius Press. So it's a, it really rounds out the volume and makes it uh, makes it really significant. But it's just the it's just the illustrations that come from Tommy DePaola. And tell us where they come from. What where do these where do these um, now you know they have they're different in quality. Some of them are really nicely finished looking uh, drawings. Some of them are a little more like doodles. You know, but where where do they come from? So Tommy had a habit of sending something he called art mail, which were these emails that he would send out each day. If you were subscribed to this list, you would get an art mail email every day and that would have a sketch or a drawing based on that day. And sometimes they would be funny, like (laughs) Ethel Norman's birthday or something. (laughs) But much of the time they were tied to the liturgical year and the saints feast days and high holy days. And knowing Tommy, he was a very, uh, he was very committed to rituals. Uh, one of the things I love, I, I love so much about him is that um, in his house, there is a, a, a something of a shrine to Our Lady of uh, um, Guadalupe. And he has all these candles everywhere. And um, by the time I had visited, he was in his, I think he was 80 or 81 this, at this point. And he said, well, I used to have real candles, but I can't get around. I can't get up and get around and, and light all the candles anymore. So now these are all... Um, I don't know if they're electronic. I can't remember. They were all like fake candles. He had a remote (laughs) and he would be able to turn off all the candles with the remote, but he wouldn't just turn off the candles like any normal human grown-up would do. He was Tommy DePaola. So he would grab this remote and he would flick it at the same time he would go and blow (laughs) and turn out all the candles. But he was so tied to like daily quiet, daily prayer, daily like internal time that he had spaces in his home that you could see were dedicated to to the internal life and uh, to what was going on inside the heart. And you can see that in his illustrations of this book. Uh, I love that there's so many of them because it really shows what commitment he had to the beauty and reverence that he had, I should say, the reverence he had for the liturgical year and for the feast days and for the saints and the stories that that the tradition of our faith gives us. So I love, I think the the text snippets in here too, the um the text that accompanies each of them are so well done. I will tell you, I have um we have three off at college now, three kids off at college and three still at home are twin tens and an 11 year old. And I keep this book next to our breakfast table and I'll just kind of flip to it while I'm making my coffee in the morning and see, is there one for today and read it aloud to the kids. And I feel like we're learning so much about saints that I've never heard of or saints that I've heard of, but I didn't know really what they were about. And then to see them paired with Tommy's illustrations adds this sort of epic like story, like a, like a, mm, I don't want to say 
mythological. I want to say like it, it just gives it body and shape and like a, a sort of magic quality that I think it wouldn't have if I was just reading the text alone. So they pair so well and the, they're so well written. So I'm, I think Tommy was, uh, I do know this about Tommy. He is a very particular man. So things were, he had opinions on everything. I think he'd be delighted with how this book came out. The color of it, the shape of it, the feel of it. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful book to hold in your hands. It is a beautiful book and, and the kind of thing that makes a great gift. And you can, you know, I can imagine lots of families using it the way that that you've described, Sarah, just kind of opening it, opening it up each day and seeing if there's a saint to talk about as a family. Um, and let's talk about some of those saints, because you, you mentioned earlier that Tommy DePaola's books have a way of kind of, I forget what phrase you use, but something about kind of uh, forming the imagination, maybe the, the, the faith imagination even of, of children. Um, and some of the choices that he made for some of these illustrations that are in the book are really interesting because they are not only saints that even I had never heard of before, but they're patron saints of really interesting things that I think would be kind of charming to, to children or to families. You know, like for example, there's Saint Honoratus, whose feast day is May 16th, and he's the patron of bakers and pastry chefs, you know, <laughs> so I can just imagine, you know, how that would spark interesting conversations. Or St. Malo, November 15th, who is the patron of pig keepers. I can only imagine little little children just being tickled pink, you know, to, to think of that. Uh, and then, of course, there's St. Francis of, pa of Paola, yep. April 2nd, who, you know, he's included uh, as you know, that family connection. So that's a neat thing. So I wonder, are there any other saints that, that stand out to you or just anything you want to comment on in, on the choice of the things that he that he drew in, uh, you know, that are included in this volume? Do you know what's interesting? I've noticed, I just noticed this recently as I was as I was poking through this book is what makes, I don't know what it is. I'm just going to like speculate a couple of things that I've noticed about what makes his illustrations of saints different than anyone else's. And I think he somehow manages to depict the childlike quality maybe in each of the saints. I mean, I've read about a lot of these saints before, but like if you go to September 18th, which is St. Joseph of Cupertino, um, He's a grown man who's flying, right? Um, but he there's like a childlike quality to the way Tommy drew him. I don't know enough about art necessarily to understand why he there is that childlike quality about the character himself. I'm sure um, someone else could kind of tell me what about the lines or the shape or the composition is making me see that. But let's go to like October 15th, St. Teresa of Avila. Like I've never seen St. Teresa drawn quite like that. She's got very red lips in this illustration. That's so interesting. I hadn't noticed that before. There's something that he's doing here, I think, that like taps us into the child of God that we all are inside. Um, and that's something I really appreciate. And this is true for his picture books, which I know Ignatius has um, brought back into print several of his uh, religious picture books, is that I think somehow the way he writes and depicts saints in his stories helps us relate to them at a different level than maybe instead of like St. Teresa of Avila, like, oh goodness, like, um, can I relate to the one who wrote like about the interior castle? Like it can be kind of, in some ways there can be, feel like there's a barrier there that he sort of breaks with these childlike illustrations that, that remind us that we're all these children of God. 
Yeah, I think I think that's well put. You know, I um I think about how I have to admit I didn't know Tommy DePaola. I was born in 1979, so I certainly could have been raised on on some of his on some mm-hmm. of his books, and maybe maybe I was, and I just don't really remember. Yeah. But yeah. my children are now 13 and 11, so um, we're we're kind of past the. Maybe maybe you maybe you have a good word for me. Maybe I should still be reading aloud even to them. But uh, we're sort of a little past that that stage. But I you know I discovered Tommy DePaola when I was reading aloud to my kids when they were when they were very little. And we were not Catholic then. We're converts. Yeah. And I have to admit that you know reading, for example, um, one that one that my daughter just totally there's completely uh, fired her imagination was the Night of Las Posadas. And so we had never heard of this before, like ever. And we were still a few years away probably from becoming Catholic, but learning about that and learning the biggest one. um, And this relates to the point you were making about the illustrations in general, but just I think his sort of storytelling technique too that he does with both his illustrations and his words is um, his book of Our Our Lady of Guadalupe, which you mentioned before that he had such a devotion to her. And I kid you not, I mean, I was already in my, I don't know, in my 30s, and I am, I should have known, you know, I've studied theology. I didn't know anything about Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. So there's this guy who's going to like take his poncho thing and put flowers in them, and this is going to turn into this famous picture, or whatever. And the yeah. way that he, but the way that he drew that, you know, captivated me even as an adult with this kind of childlike wonder for this story, which is just one of the most precious stories in the whole. Catholic tradition really at this point. So I just appreciate that so much. And that definitely does come through. I think you're right, Sarah, with so many of these, um, these um, illustrations that he used to send out to his, his friends and followers. Um, I kind of wonder as you're talking and thinking like, why is that? So um, I'm a convert too. And actually there were some things, you know, as you're coming into the faith that you're like, Oh, I just don't know about that thing, whatever that thing is, especially if you were raised evangelical, like I was. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things like, so one of the ways I'm just thinking of Our Lady of Guadalupe, I think the picture book is called The Lady of Guadalupe. Right? Yes, yes, um, yes. Okay, so one of the things about that is that it's almost like his style, and I don't know if it's because it's a, it's got like that folk style to it. It's almost like it's not an icon because it's not icon iconography, but it's also not like a a cartoon it's not even like a typical child's um illustration like if you look at the way he he draws hands and heads and bodies it's almost like there's a little bit of a formalness to it just enough that makes you realize this is not just a story that's what it feels like to me maybe it's not just like your typical picture book story this is a story you know like i don't know there i'm looking right now at the um at the Mardi Gras, which is on page 24. And there's like, there's this playful element of like this huge stack of pancakes with syrup dripping off of them and this child (laughs) jester's Mm -hmm. costume ready for Fat Tuesday. Um, And then you, you flip the, you flip the page and you're looking at Saints Perpetua and Felicity and St. Patrick. And you're immediately like, we get to be both the kind of people who eat stacks of pancakes and who are reverent. I don't know. There's something about that. I can't really put my finger on it. It's so hard to describe. Because like when I look at these pictures of Saints Perpetua and Felicity, those lines, they really do just look so simple. You're like, anybody could draw that. But it's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not how it works. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I, I like how you pointed out 
um, in particular, the way he draws hands. I, there's something really, really unique about his style in that way. They, they, they have almost a kind of childlike look, like if a, uh, just a, just any old buddy was trying to draw, uh, draw a person and put some and put some hands on. Which hands, I guess, are notoriously difficult. I'm not much of an artist myself, but supposedly like very difficult to to draw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is there is something that he's able to do with his drawing where he conveys uh, something really quite carefully done, but also not. I don't know, overdone somehow. Yeah, it, it's, yeah that's it's really a good special way to put quality. It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if you saw some of his other drawings, there's a book I have around here somewhere um, by Barbara Elman called The Worlds of Tommy DePella. And in that book, there's like picture, uh, lots of his art, and it kind of tells the story of his life. And um, in that book, you can see some of his other artwork. Like the man can draw hands. Like you can draw hands mm. that look like a hand that don't look like the hand that you see here with St. Patrick on page 27 on March 17th. But this particular style was chosen for a purpose. And mm -hmm. it, it was like, it was done. That's so interesting. Like it just, the way that St. Patrick is holding that shamrock is even just very interesting where I'm like, Hmm, I just think there's so much more than meets the eye at first. And you can almost feel it. Like you can feel it when you look at it. There's a reason why when we look at his art, we feel closer to God, mm -hmm. even if our head can't tell us why. Yeah, and you mentioned icon, the word icon before. I do think there's something uh, something iconographic about about the way that he draws some of these figures yeah. of the faith, um, it, because they're they're not uh, not just sort of pure figures of you know they're not like yeah. uh, animated figures or something like that, like mm -hmm. uh, like from a comic book or something. They're they're there's something else about them that I can't quite put my finger on, but definitely has a captivating quality and no doubt it contributed to the fact that his books were kind of so special to so many people. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, um, what do you think, you know, we, we, we've got plenty of time and space here to talk further about Tommy DePaula. I, I would love to just get your further thoughts, you know, so he's gone now. Um, we've got this, we've got this last, this last book do you i mean do you happen to know are there other other things that we may see from from him um or uh you know are, are, are there does his legacy live on in in some way that we may uh you know just continue to experience things from him i mean i think i know this for sure i know that they are working really hard at bringing his out of print works into print like i mentioned and i think i don't know if it's in the forward if it's i, I want to always be clear if it's 240 or 280 250 okay 250 there's over 250 books that he was a part of illustrating or writing and illustrating I know they're bringing a lot of those back into print so it's always it's my favorite thing in the world when I discover like there's an entire Tommy book that I didn't even know about yet that's mm -hmm. amazing so um I know that Ignatius is bringing religious books back into print I know that some other publishers like secular publishers are bringing some of his secular work back into print and I think one of the things that I'm most excited about is to see his work being digitized because Tommy had told me about the um the difference between and I don't understand the whole process between how they used to publish picture books, but they're the process is so we're so much have so much more technological, you know, a capacity now to get the colors that were actually on the page. When mm -hmm. I was at his studio, he had this huge wall in his barn that was full of um, it's like up in the loft of his barn. It was full of these um, really wide, shallow drawers. And when you opened them, that's like 
original art is in there. And he would pull it out and I would think, oh my goodness, that art is so much more vibrant than I realized it was in my old copy of hmm. The Lady of Guadalupe or The Holy Twins or something. So every time they're being brought back into print, they're updating the illustrations because now we have a better way to capture those colors. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, so every time they re-release anyone, re-releases a new book by him that's just uh, brought back into print, I buy it because it's going to be a better, it's going to be a truer experience to what he actually painted. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's, I don't know if there are other books or works that they haven't, mm -hmm. that we're going to see that we hadn't seen before. I don't, I don't believe there are, but Ooh, that would be a fun surprise. <laughs> Do you know, Sarah, you know, raising this issue of uh, of bringing out new editions and using kind of new technology to to bring out a, a purer version maybe uh, than people had experienced. Do you know what what was Tommy DePaolo's relationship like with technology? Did he did he use it at, in his art or I mean that's it's that's something that's always fascinating to me about literary people. He did not use it with his art. His art was mm -hmm. all traditional. What you see is what you get. He, If you look at an illustration and you see it, that is exactly what it looked like on the page. Um, he did nothing with Photoshop. Um, he didn't digitize his art at all, which is, of course, not what we typically see these days with uh, art. But I think he had a very high regard for traditional art and for, for putting all the art directly on the paper itself. Mm -hmm. Um that said, he did, you know, like send those daily emails and art mm -hmm. mail, although I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't him who was behind the technology there. Hi, Bob. We're all waving at you. <laughs> we thank you for the art mail that you made sure got out every day. Um, I think for the most part, he wasn't he he wasn't into technology very mm -hmm. much. Uh, Tommy, one of his picture books that he made in one of the last ones he made that was brand new was called Quiet. And it was really, it's really just a, a book about a, a grandfather and a grandson, I think, um, walking through the world and being quiet together. That's really what the book is about. He was very loud and big, but he also had a very deep interior life. And like I mentioned, a commitment to daily quiet. And he had all these spaces in his house that would be carved, um, carved, out just for prayer meditation, just for lighting a candle and getting quiet. And so I think his, I know actually, because he mentioned to me uh, a concern of his was how many children were being raised without a lot of space for quiet. And that's mm -hmm. what he was trying to say with his book without saying, without preaching it. <laughs> yeah. Just like hint at, like there's a gift here we're about to lose if we let technology get away from with us. Yeah, I admit this is a concern of mine. I, I you know, it, it, reading books is one of probably my favorite thing to do. And, and it's certainly something I want my children to do. And it was very important to my wife and me as our kids were very, very young that we read aloud to them and that we, you know, um, tried to instill a love of, of reading and literature in them. And we still try to keep devices away from them and technology away from them. It's becoming more and more difficult, but yeah. um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a question embedded in this, except maybe to throw it back to you uh, either from kind of the perspective of what you know about Tommy or your own work, just, you know, what's uh, what are we facing now uh, for children? I mean, Tommy's books are so obviously so um, just as you say, like so helpful in creating a place of focus and quiet and, and even contemplation for the youngest, youngest people. And I just fear that that's, 
that's very difficult to do with the the noise and distractions of the world today. I don't know if you have any comments about that or thoughts. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one is that that is one of the reasons I love reading aloud so much is that it requires us to get quiet and stop the noise of the world just for a minute because you can't really read Charlotte's Web with your kids at the same time that you're, um, you know, on your phone or answering email or whatever. Um, you can try to make the grocery list while you're reading aloud. I've done that. I've tried to do that. That doesn't work. <laughs> so it sort of forces you to be present and to be wherever your feet are, you know, like just going to be here with these people that God put in my path right now. The other thing, though, is I had a guest on Read Aloud Revival, the podcast. Um, his name is Dr. Daniel Willingham. He wrote a book called Raising Kids Who Read. And in that book, he talks about how if he was to put um, a like cut up a big watermelon and put that watermelon on the dining room table after dinner for dessert, his kids would come and they would eat it and they would enjoy it. It would, the watermelon would be gone and everybody would enjoy it. If he put that watermelon on the table and put a bowl of candy on the table, everybody would eat the candy. And mm -hmm. I would probably too, like that would be me too, especially with chocolate. Um, and so then he kind of likened technology to the candy and reading to the watermelon, the water, the reading is nourishing and good, and we actually really love it. But it's really hard to choose it mm -hmm. when there's something else on the table. And I've seen this in my own life. Same as you, Andrew. Reading is my very favorite thing to do. I want to do more of it. I'm always looking for more pockets of time to do it. In. So sorry. I'm always looking for more um, pockets of time to, you know, find to read. Um, but when I climb into bed at night, I will have my phone next to it on the charger and I'll think I'm just using it for my alarm mm -hmm. <laughs> funny that it just went out uh, <laughs> timing is funny uh but still and so I'll have my book and I want to read the book but I'll just think I'm gonna I'm just gonna pick it one more thing on my mm -hmm. phone and I'm a 42 year old woman who knows I want to be a reader how much harder must this be for a 16 year old a 15 year old an 18 year old mm -hmm. a 25 year old like as we I think just being aware of the demand and the weight that we're that technology is putting on our young people can be really helpful. So Daniel's suggestion is to have carve out a time of day when you are just putting watermelon on the table. And so that could be like the last half an hour before bed, or it can be some other time of day, depending on what your family life and day looks like, how your day is structured. But basically where the choices that you can read, that's what you can do. And so mm -hmm. we'll do that at our house. You know, we'll have like a reading time and they can listen to audiobooks or they can read with their eyes. So read with their eyes, read with their ears, but nothing else. And I have found that it's like a really big gift, even to myself, because it's taken away that I don't have to, ha it's like that decision fatigue. I don't have to choose to read. That's what mm -hmm. it's already been chosen for me. So, but I'm with you. I think it's tricky. I think we're going to, we're a, we're a generation that has to figure this out because our kids are the first generation really to have grown up with technology in their pocket. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, that's really helpful to, to think that through. Yeah. We, we try to do this too. Like, or, or if you do pose a choice, the choice is read or do nothing. Like you can actually offer do nothing as a choice. Yeah. And then, and then that becomes, you know, it's sort of like the watermelon or nothing. Yeah. Well, um, then yeah. you think the watermelon is really, really great compared to nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I wonder in the time that remains, I'd love to hear more about your about your read aloud work and some of some of the work that you do, and maybe you know how it relates to to children's literature and children's formation, uh, 
you know, family life, family formation, which are all things that are connected to Tommy DePaolo's work, to be sure. Yeah, at Read a Lot of Revival, really our mission is to help families fall in love with books together because we believe so much that God, that our... God made us for connection. He made us through story. We are stories. He, you know, when we, when we look at the scriptures, the way Jesus taught was through story. It, every time he was speaking, practically, he was speaking with a story with a parable. And we know that um, right now in the world, it's just, we all really want to connect with our kids and we want to raise kids who are prepared for whatever life throws at them, but we have no idea what that is. So what better way to help them be prepared for the unexpected than letting them walk a mile in the shoes of another, which is really what we do every time we open a book. And this is something that I really think going back to Tom, circling this back into Tommy that he did with his picture books. Um, and actually even with his chapter book series, that's about his life, 26 Fairmont Avenue, that whole series, um, it, it really helps us see the world from another point of view or see what things were like from, and that's what happens every time we open a story, every time we read with our kids. So basically what we're doing when we're reading with our kids is giving them a chance to walk a mile in the shoes of another and grow in that compassion, empathy, and help see people the way Christ sees them. That Hmm. is a gift that I think is really, that's what we want for our kids. But if you were told, you know, there's this free way you can do that. It only takes like 10 minutes. You do it every other day. That'd be amazing. And it will, help your kids grow in empathy and compassion and see Christ and others. It will give them the chance to bear witness to um, characters over people overcoming difficult odds again and again. Um, and it will help you connect when it's just really hard to connect. Sometimes it's really hard to like, just find, I know, especially with my older kids. Um, now our oldest are all at college now, but especially in their, you know, middle school and high school years, um, one of the things I really appreciated about reading aloud was that when we would, or audiobooks that we'd listen to together, was that when we would be butting heads or struggling to see eye to eye exactly, <laughs> um, reading a story would connect us instantly because now we're rooting for the same characters. We're like holding our breath in the same moment. We're tearing up at the same moment. It like puts us on the same team. It kind of reminds us like, oh yeah, that's right. We're for each other, which is kind of hard to remember sometimes when you're in the day-to-day of family life. It can get a little tricky to remember. So that's really what we're doing at Read a Lot Revival is helping parents and kids read together, fall in love with stories together, connect to God, to each other, and to ideas through the stories that they they read together. And so we do that through a podcast. So wherever you listen to this podcast, you can listen to Read a Lot Revival. And then we also, um, we have a community called RAR Premium. And that's actually the community where I first met Tommy because I invited him to... Um, to join us there. And every month we have a family book club uh, choice. So we choose a book that we're going to read for our family book club. We make a family book club guide that helps parents enjoy this book with their kids from the youngest kids from age three, all the way up through 18. We've got conversation starters and ideas for meals and memories you can make around the book. And then we meet the author illustrator, or we'll do a writing um, kind of some, some fun sort of writing exercise or, a lot of times we're tying in nature, the appreciation of nature through a literary nature study with the book. So we do that in what we call a family book club live. So every month we've got like this family book club guide and we've everyone's reading the book and then we do this live together on Zoom. So it's really fun. And that's been a really life-giving um, community to lead and watch grow. And Tommy was a big part of it. So actually every year, 
on April 18th, <laughs> we call it Tommy Day, <laughs> because those first two years that we met, he said, this is our day. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's so when he passed, I thought this is still our day. So we do Tommy Day. And it's really just families in our community. I'll go to the library and try and get as many Tommy books as you can. And we just read them and eat pasta and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe have popcorn because popcorn was Tommy's favorite food. Nice. Your, your use of the, your, your use of the word revival seems important to me. Um, it, are, do you, are you hopeful that, that reading aloud and, and the, you know, what certainly what Tommy DePaula was, was trying to do and what now you're trying to do in your work with like inspiring people to read and to, to be connected to each other through story. Are you hopeful that indeed this is being revived now? I mean, it seems like children's books sell pretty well. And, you know, there are lots of them. If you go to bookstores, they're very often, I can't find things that I'm looking for, but the children's <laughs> section is very big, it seems. Uh, I love, I've never been asked that question. And I love it so much because I've, I'm, I, yes, absolutely. One of the things that I think I've been surprised about ever since launching the Read Aloud Revival podcast is I really started it thinking, I would just do a couple episodes about how reading aloud had transformed our own family life. I had heard that it was really good for academic, like, the best thing you really can do to help your child um, succeed academically was reading aloud. And so I started doing it more. And then I was floored by the way this was connecting all of our family members so much. So I started the podcast thinking we'll do a few episodes. And then it sort of took off. And I think the reason why is because people have the same experience I do, which is how can this thing that's free and and pretty easy and like kind of low barrier to entry, right? How can it make such a huge impact Um, In his book, The Read Aloud Handbook, Jim Trelease says that if you could package all of the benefits of reading aloud into a pill, people would pay enormous amounts of money and wait in these long, long lines Mm -hmm. to give it to their kids because it's so powerful. Like I mentioned with the academics, but then also those growing in empathy and compassion and, and fortitude because you're watching all these characters overcome things and then connecting with the people you're reading with just the same way when you see a movie with someone and you want to talk about it, it feels like a connection point between you. Um, a book has that that story, like that's the power story, right? So because I think what happens in our modern families is that when we get a taste of this, we go like, oh yeah, I want more of this. I want this to be a foundational part of our family life. Um, I think I am hopeful because I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it happen with um, young families where they're realizing, you know, what do we want? What do we want for our kids? What do we want? What kind of legacy do we want? What kind of connection do we want to offer? Um, and especially as technology gets louder and we, and the world feels divided, I feel like anything we can do that makes us remember who we are and whose we are is, um, it's not to be discarded too easily. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say that is a, a hope, the revival, that there will be a revival. I think we're seeing it. That's wonderful to hear. And, and, you know, I, I was really struck by how you, you mentioned if people could take a pill to get, to get this. And of course that's, that's really what people want. Don't they? They want kind of the easy way to, to achieve certain ends, but uh, reading is time consuming and requires focus and attention in, in so many ways that, that are very difficult, increasingly difficult, as you say. So I think you know, wonderful work to to kind of try to draw people back to an understanding of what it is. That is precisely not taking a pill. It's it's um it's something much much more holistic. Um, so it kind of reminds me, Andrew, that um I was talking on the podcast with Alan Jacobs, who's a professor at Baylor University, and he yes. was um he has some really excellent books on reading. And 
one of the things he told me was that every time you're reading with your kids or every time your kids are reading, either way, you, they're practicing the art of paying attention, which is a really um, rare thing to practice because there's not very many things that call us to have to like quiet everything else and just pay attention mm -hmm. and give all of our attention. Like you said, reading takes time and it takes focus and you have to say no to everything else to be able to like focus on the thing you're reading. So even if it's a small bit of time, I think, um, you know, even when my kids are reading a book that I think is like not the highest literary value that they could read, they're still practicing that habit of attention. And I think that's just getting rarer and rarer. And it is something that I think a picture book, um, a book illustrated by Tommy would do because it, you, it pulls you in. It makes you want to give it attention. But mm -hmm. it's also why I think like this throughout the year with Tommy DePaola book is so helpful because even when we're pressed for time, even when if you feel like, man, this is not a season of life where I can start reading aloud to my kids, these selections, these daily selections can be read in like three minutes, maybe five. So, you know, just making it a quick point of your day to look and see if there's a saint stand reading it and looking at the art feels like this little bite-sized way that we could get that connection, even if we don't have the time to give it what we wish we could. This is a book everyone's going to want to get. It is Through the Year with Tommy DePaola. Sarah McKenzie, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me, talk with me today about this uh, great new volume. Al, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.